Hi there. It's another discast. And it is gorgeous today after some incredibly nasty weather days up here on Cape Cod. It's Bear Week, which as longtime readers will know is my favorite week. Lots of hairy backed middle aged dudes with big bellies wandering around town, lumbering from pool to pool. They don't tend to make it out to the far beaches because it's a bit of a schlep. But anyway, I'm in my element, and and it's now a perfect summer's day, and no better to introduce our guest today. And her name is Jean Twinge. And if you recognize that name, it's because I've been reading her for a while, and in various various aspects of my work to try and understand what's actually happening in the world. And she's a writer and researcher who focuses on generational differences. She's a psychology professor at San Diego State University and the author of seven books. She particularly did a book called iGen about Gen Z. And we're going to focus on that today, although she just has a new book called Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence. We've got all these gizmo terms for these various generations. And, and the new ones are polars, which we will, we will get to. The little polar bears are running around our legs as, as, as cubs right now, but will one day be burling, growling adults. Just let you know, coming up this summer, we have Matt Lewis coming on to talk about elites. We have Lee Fang coming on to really hash out some really emerging and interesting tensions on the left. We have the great Michael Moynihan coming up just to kibitz to me, with me rather, before I take a little breather in a few weeks' time. And we're looking forward to all of it. Anyway, by the way, we are now hitting our third year anniversary of the Weekly Dish. We're incredibly proud to have made it for three years. We're doing extremely well. We're just nudging 150,000 subscribers, which is pretty wonderful. And it's a record high. We're also nudging 21,000 paid subscribers. So this is, this is my very rare annual pitch. If you're listening to this and you love this podcast and you love the fact we don't have ads, you love the fact that I'm not telling you to buy a new lawnmower, and you like the fact that we can talk at length and with people of differing opinions, then please support us. The Weekly Dish on Substack. Get your full podcast, get the whole dish with all its reader interactions, its contests, you name it on top of the column and podcast every week. Anyway, lovely to meet Eugene. Thanks for coming on the Dishcast. Thank you for having me. Tell me, since you're professor generation, where you grew up and where you would place yourself in the generational matrix. So I feel that I grew up in a transitional way, both in terms of generations and in terms of locations. So I'm the daughter of two Minnesotans. We lived there till I was seven. Then we moved to Texas, which was very different. And we lived there at a time when it was really changing. So I, I grew up in Irving, a suburb of Dallas in the 80s at a time when it was growing just exponentially fast in the, the DFW area. And people were coming from different parts of the U.S. They were coming from all around the world. And that was a place that had been very, hom you know, homogeneous for a very long time. So I feel that that upbringing at that time and that place gave me kind of an outsider-insider perspective on Texas culture and also U.S. culture in a way 
Um, and I think it helped fuel my interest in trying to figure out how generations differ. Um, that tended to have, that happened a few you know years later. Um, I went to college at the University of Chicago because that was about as different as I felt like I could get from a Texas public high school. Um, they literally tore down the football stadium to build a library <laughs> on that campus. So Chicago, that we all we all love University of Chicago, the old school University of Chicago. Was a great pioneer and champion of free speech, of course, University of Chicago. Yeah, and and still and still is the which, Chicago which is Fantastic, I know exactly. Yep. Yep. But I'm so, interested. What did your parents do, yeah. the, these Minnesotans? What, what, yeah. what did they do to bring them down to Dallas? So before I was born, they were both junior high school teachers. Oh. My mom taught English. My dad taught history. Um, and then after I was born, my dad got a job as an assistant registrar at Winona State University. And he wanted to be the boss. He wanted to be the uh, director of admissions someplace. So he took a job doing that at a community college in Irving. And so as you were settling in in Texas, what were the main influx? uh, What was the main cultural change that you observed? Yeah. Well, you know, of course, elementary school, middle school, none of this was really on my radar. But by, by high school, it was really fascinating to see how the folks whose families have been there for a while were pretty much all white and Christian. And there were a lot of Asian immigrants coming in. And there was a lot of disagreement and conflict around, you know, should we say a prayer at the high school football game? And if we do, should it have an explicit Christian reference and things, things like that, you know, came up quite a bit. I also personally got into a ton of debates with people about women's roles and whether women should work after they have children and things that are not particularly controversial now, no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, it's just not debated as much, but it was then. So you're talking about demographic change ethnically. You're also talking about cultural change in terms of the roles of women. Your whole book, this book that charts all these generations, is really about how human beings adapt to rapid change. And in some ways, when you look at these generations, I wonder whether we could look in the past, say, like in the 19th century or in the 18th century, and do something similar and have the stark differences that we seem to have between the generations. Is it true, do you think, that that we're changing faster than ever? And that's why the experiences of Gen Z, for example, and the experiences of the silent generation are almost unintelligible to each other? I think so. And, you know, my main thesis in the book is that generational change primarily comes from changes in technology. So both direct effects of technology and the downstream effects through things like growing individualism, taking longer to grow up and longer to grow old. So if that's true, then if changes in technology speed up, generational change is going to speed up. And I think it's pretty clear that that's exactly what has happened. That if you think about, say, technological change in previous eras, it was there, but it it tended to happen over a few decades. And recently, those changes have come much more quickly, and they've had 
it's a, you know just a, a really big impact on day-to-day life and the way we communicate and the way we socialize. Let's take one example, which I find sort of interesting, and that is increasing lifespans, which obviously when our parents, when my parents were born, a whole different attitude towards how long your life was going to be, how you mm-hmm. schedule that out in so many ways. I am, I'm going to hit 60 next month. I'm absolutely terrorized by the prospect. I realize also that when I look at myself today, and this is not entirely confirmation bias, I don't look like what I thought 60 would look like when I was like 15. I always thought 60 would be like really old, really old. And and the truth is when I was in my teens and I looked to people in their 60s, they they were further down the line. They they had smoked more, they had drunk more, they were they had eaten less well, they were often prone to various diseases and you know 65 you retired and maybe you'd have five to ten years of not terribly active life and now we have to reorient ourselves entirely and you you was a phrase you used called slow growing really which is that one of the consequences of this is that we have slowed childhood and adolescence down to an almost torpid pace in which children specifically and young adults are just much less mature and forced to be much less mature than they were in previous generations. Can you unpack that for me a little bit? Yeah, th- this is one of the the downstream effects that's had such a big impact on day-to-day life that it's called the slow life strategy as opposed to a fast life strategy. So slow life strategy happens when people live longer, and that's absolutely happened, when education takes longer to finish. So more people finish high school, go to college, for example. People tend to have smaller families because infant mortality is lower. So you put all of these things together, and the end result is that the developmental trajectory slows down at every stage of the lifespan. So children are less independent. Teens are less likely to get their driver's license or have a paid job or drink alcohol or date or go out of the house without their parents. They do those things, so they do them a lot less than previous generations did and at older ages. Young adults marry later, have children later, settle into their careers later. And you're right, middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents and grandparents did at the same age. You know, 50 is the new 40, 60 is the new 50. So it really is affecting all people, all ages and all generations where people seem to notice it the most and talk about it the most, I think, is with is with teens just not doing those adult things as much as previous generations did. It's not that they don't do them; it's they don't want to do them. This is, I think, right. this is this is this right. is this exactly. is this is the hard thing for me to process. I can understand being held back, mm-hmm. but the strange thing about these these kids these days, to use the coin of phrase, is first of all their reluctance to do things. Secondly, their 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 passivity in many ways and also their obedience to their elders is is quite striking we've when you when 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 i grew up in the idea of a teenager was this rebellious streak this was free speech do your own thing get out there get laid get drunk get high whatever you will make mistakes but we'll figure that out later and so on and so forth and now it just i mean and and i i can't help but be judgmental about this i think i think these these teenagers are are still children in so many ways why do they not want to grow up Mm -hmm. so we have to put this in context 
that neither one of these strategies is all bad or all good. There's trade-offs involved. Most parents and public health experts are pretty thrilled that not as many teens are having sex and drinking alcohol. That's, you know, there's clearly some good things How about big it. a decline is that in sex, for example? Like, uh, it's, it's pretty big. It, I'd have to look up yeah. the exact stats. But, you know, among, say, high school students, used to be maybe 40% had had sex, and now it's more like 25 Wow. So it, it's gone down a fair amount. And this is not because they've all become religious or... or no, they become, to... they're less religious. Yeah, that's another fascinating... That's the other thing that's really striking. Yeah. But, you know, I think you're also correct that there, there are definite downsides to this as well. That, you know, we, we just have a whole generation who's reaching adulthood without as much experience with independence. Then they go to college or into the workplace and they still have to make those decisions and be independent and they just haven't done it as much. And I, I, I think it's, it's, it is it's interesting to consider, oh, is it just because their parents have overprotected them? It doesn't look like that's what's going on. This generation fights with their parents less than previous generations did, than Gen Xers did, like you and me say. So, you know, they, and just... And Why totally, do they not you know, fight with their parents? Them, what is wrong with these kids? Like, like what... <laughs> Do you have, I mean, there are lots of, I mean, the book that you write is very empirical. It's just, and it's very neutral, objective. It's not judgmental in any ways. And it's just very factual about the differences. But of course, one is curious as to why these differences are happening. And you, right. there are many places where you just don't know really why these things are happening, but they do seem to be happening. And I want, I want to talk about sex, for example. Like, this is something that one would imagine would be an entirely intuitive thing that would, would that you would have a natural process by which the human animal at puberty develops sexual desires, seeks them out. In previous centuries, in previous millennia, kids were married and having kids in their teens quite routinely. Now, now this flight from actual physical interaction, is this a function of, of online life? Is it a function of online pornography, especially with, with men? Is that making sex seem sort of in, an impossible fantasy as opposed to something you could start out with the basics? Yeah, so in two different questions. I do think that teens, well, let's back up. So it teens do have less time with their friends and peers face-to-face -face than they used to. Hmm. So that's got to be part of it. That's the phone. That, yeah, that they're just simply spending less time in each other's presence. And they're communicating much more online and on social media. So that's the first part. <clears throat> then there's the, the next piece of, well, is it is it online pornography? That part is harder to quantify and to, to trot out because people who watch online pornography tend to have more sex in real life, not less. Huh. But as online pornography has increased, at least sex among teenagers and young adults actually too, has gone down. So you have somewhat conflicting stories depending mm. on what level of analysis you're using. Mm. To my mind, it's, it's that when I was discovering sex, I had to make it all up for myself. I had to use my own imagination. There was much less education about sex when we were younger, much less talk about it. And so you felt like you were pioneering things. You were discovering exciting new stuff. Now it seems that they've already know every single possible position, every single possible fantasy, and, and, and have also 
internalize this hookup culture in a way that sex is not about marriage and children. It is fundamentally about fun to begin with. But then it comes laden with that generation with all sorts of terrors and fears of, of, of violation, of harassment, of abuse. Is, is there a difference between boys and girls on this question? I mean, the decline has been very similar for for both boys and girls. You know, just in so for the yeah for the last book for iGen, I did you know I did some interviews and tried to gather some first person sources on on this about about why you know it might have declined. I think a lot of it does have to do with that slow life strategy and teens not spending time with each other in person. But I agree that fear is in there too. I kept seeing that mentioned in a way that I think just didn't happen in previous decades of associating sexuality with that possibility of sexual assault and physical danger. And yes, those are real fears. Those are real things that happen. But the way people assess risk, I think, has changed a lot. And iGen or Gen Z is just very, very focused on safety in a way that, for example, Gen X definitely was not. This obsession with safety, the safe space, you know, we don't want to hear an unsafe word, that uh, we will be harmed if we are exposed to ideas that might challenge us. Again, it's, it's hard for me to believe this didn't come from, any, from nowhere. This, this came from nowhere. It must come surely be affected by the way parents increasingly are spending more time with their children, they're more close in, helicopter parenting model. They have fewer kids, so they spend more attention and pay more care to them. This is especially true, I'm talking mainly about middle class and upper middle class kids. Whereas in the past, you know, I mean, to give an example, my grandmother was a seventh of 13 kids. I mean, how much time could their mother really devote to them? And to some extent, there was also this level of just get on and deal with it kids you go out go outside come back when it's dinner time and try not to bother me i've got the laundry to do that would that was basically my mother's position so is that is that is it a function of having fewer kids having them later investing more in them because because in fact education all that stuff matters more for life advancement than it did a few generations ago that's definitely part of it and that's goes hand in hand with that slow life strategy Kids grow up faster, slower. They have less independence because there's fewer of them. They get more attention. The parents invest more in each child. There's more the anticipation of higher education. Income inequality probably plays some role in this too. And, But it's not just parents. The culture has changed in this direction. There are parents who want their kids to be free range, but they're afraid that if they let their eight-year-old walk back alone from the park that child protective services will show up and they have sometimes there's you know stories about that so it's been an overall shift in the whole culture toward the idea that children need to be carefully protected and i think this is another place where there's clear trade-offs because we've done really well in this area you know a lot fewer kids die or get injured in car accidents and other types of of you know physical accidents but there's been mission creep. You know, we certainly have that idea we need to protect kids from physical harm, 
but that's crept up to we need to protect kids from experiences. Like we don't want them to be uncomfortable. We don't want them to be unhappy. When they get older, oh, you know, then there's, then it, then, you know, and then the kids become teenagers and young adults. And then they have the idea of, I don't want to be in the situation where some, where I might disagree with someone and feel uncomfortable. And it just, it creeps up that scale to where, as many people have observed, the word trauma doesn't mean anything anymore because it's applied to so many situations, many of which are probably not trauma. Yeah, it's, and, and we kind of have a way of looking at this, which is measuring self-declared measures of happiness or of sadness, depression, optimism. And, you know, we can talk objectively, it's slow living more better or worse, but it does seem to be making kids, at least they are less happy and less adjusted than it seems they have than have been in a very long time, which is a paradox, of course, right? Because you sort of think, man, if I were a kid in like the 30s, struggling to survive, you know, in the depression, I might have lots of actual real trauma to deal with. And yet they seem to have gotten through it, carried on. Um, you know, my my grandparents and parents were in London when it was being bombed, and 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 they they don't talk about their trauma, they don't talk about their feelings afterwards. But but somebody hears somebody use the wrong word, and they're 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 a quivering wreck. So tell me about the levels of unhappiness among Gen Z, and and how they compare generationally to other generations at this time in their development. Sure. So, you know, the overall picture of the generational trends in mental health is pretty complex. But if we focus on, say, the trends for teens and young adults in the last 20 years, there's an extremely clear, consistent, simple picture, which is depression, anxiety, self-harm, suicide attempts, completed suicide, you know, pretty much everything you can think of that is related to mental health, also unhappiness, life satisfaction, loneliness, either Im either improves or is stable until about 2012, and then it all goes wrong. So clinical level depression is a good example, doubled for teens between 2011 and 2019. So notice that's before the pandemic. There's a lot of talk now about the adolescent mental health crisis, but so much of it says, oh, it's because of the pandemic. It is not because of the pandemic that, yeah, the rates continued to go up during the pandemic, but at about the same pace hmm. that they had been going up since around 2012. Hmm. And we know it's not just people being more willing to admit to problems because emergency room admissions for self-harm and suicide attempts have also gone up and the pattern's almost exactly the same. Hmm. So we actually do have some objective measurements here to to measure against people's self-report because self-reporting and a lot of a lot of the work that you do is based upon people's telling people what they feel and what they are. And of course that is not the most reliable of, of sources. Well, I mean that's debatable because okay. who's better to say how someone is feeling than that person? But it is true that you have to make sure that you get what you're looking at isn't simply a, a, a gauge of 
you know, some kind of bias in terms of who's going to be more likely to report something or so on. And, you know, most of these surveys are completely anonymous and they do a pretty good job of making that clear because a lot of them also ask about, like, say, illegal drug use and things like mm. that. So they have those those mechanisms pretty well in place, you know. And I mean, think about this. If a 16-year-old is going to, you know, if they're going to be asked in a survey about whether they do cocaine, you know, if they're going to be honest about that, why why wouldn't they be honest about whether they feel sad? Right. Yeah, I, 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 I take your point. On the other hand, they could just be whining and 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 not, or want to impress someone with their sadness. But 2012 is an interesting date, isn't it? Because because it is stark. It's not like a graduate. It suddenly yeah. changes around. Yeah, that. exactly. So 2005 is when the iPhone hits. Right? 2007. 2007. Okay, 2007. So we, basically the first generation to use iPhones from childhood onwards uh, are miserable. <laughs> this is sort of the, this right. is the great and revelation. Think, yeah, not not a coincidence, I think. Cuz that that's the time when okay, so it was introduced in 2007, but not everybody had one. Social media wasn't where it was later. So 2012 is a turning point because that's the first year the majority of Americans owned a smartphone. Uh, it's also when Facebook bought Instagram. Social media's character started to change. The algorithms got much more sophisticated. It became much more image-based around that time. Plus, it's also the same time that teens started spending a lot less time with each other face-to-face. -face. That had been declining like, just a little bit. Say, I don't know, we got data going back to the 70s. There's some ups and downs, and it starts to slide a little around 2000 when maybe it might be replaced by, say, you know, interactive messaging or something like that, like AOL Instant Messenger. A lot of millennials talk about that. But it that decline really, really accelerates in the age of the smartphone because that online communication, that's when it started to replace teens hanging out with each other at each other's houses or driving around in cars or going to the mall or any of these other things that the teens used to do a lot more. So the other thing that happens, teens start to sleep less around that time too. Mm. So that was a that was a turning point for sleep deprivation. Mm. Also related to technology use. Tons of studies on that. That uh, smartphones in particular, because they're small, can be carried into the bedroom and they end up interfering with sleep. Mm. So that's the basic pattern. That that's around the time teens started spending less time sleeping, less time with their friends face to face. No matter why, you know, even if you kind of don't even think about the direct effects of social media or smartphones, that alone, less sleep, less time with friends in person, not a good formula for mental health. They've also just faced and therefore haven't mastered various risks, you know, that kids previously would master. When I was, I hate to sound like, when I was a lad, but I, when I was 11 years old, I was put on a public bus and told to get to school in an hour and a half. And, and I had to figure out, I had to get off one bus, get another bus. I was a tiny little thing, but, and it was bewildering and frightening for a bit. It was alarming, but, but then you've got a little bit of self-esteem from having done it. You mastered it yourself. And then you start feeling more comfortable in that. Then you take other risks. If, if your parents are constantly protecting you from any of these dangerous and uncomfortable and scary sometimes experiences, you never learn how to master them. And so you feel you tend to feel more helpless in the face of, 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 of future challenges, right? And it's, it's, it's tough to say if 
those trends in the slow life strategy and, and protection and kids, you know, taking longer to grow up, those have some advantages. So I think it may be playing in to the mental health crisis, but it's not as clear of a time sequence or a path of causation as it is for that shift in, in technology, partially because the slow life strategy trends started late 90s. That's when they really you you mm-hmm. really start seeing those show mm-hmm. up. You can make a tipping point argument though that at some point you know then teens were not getting as many of those experiences. You know it's it's also interesting though that the rise in depression and self harm was the largest among the youngest. So ages about ten to fourteen is where you see the biggest mm. increases there. And I'm not sure which theory that would favor more i mean maybe technology because at that age when you're getting exposed to those technologies then it's much more overwhelming and you're really not ready for them but maybe that's the time when kids not having independence starts to click in in terms of you know that they're not developing that developing that feeling of self-confidence that you're describing yeah which is kind of important for self-esteem I faced this risk and danger and I overcame it and mm-hmm. I overcame it. No one did it for me. And that kind of confidence leads you to say, I don't believe in that. I don't agree with that. I have something to come from. But if you are, if you're essentially infantilized, which is, you know, maybe that's too strong a word, but you are definitely coddled in ways that you can't emotionally develop. Now, usually, you know, you could say, well, that's going to happen later in life. But isn't it true, actually, that we are pretty much formed in our adolescence, that our characters are not going to have huge differences after that. So that, in fact, these traits are not going to resolve themselves in time. They're not going to get better able at dealing with challenges. They're not going to feel more comfortable with risk over time. They might even get into a sort of panic zone of having to have all risks and all discomfort banished from their lives in order for them to feel okay. I think that's the big question is how is Gen Z going to look as they move through young adulthood? You know, is it going to be a benefit that they were more protected as children? Or is it going to be to their detriment? And I think we don't we don't entirely know yet, although the mental health statistics for young adults, where you also have a near doubling of depression, suggest it's not working out that well. But there are these other influences, too. Yeah, the one thing you don't get from hanging out together, for example, or the one thing you don't get by having fights with your parents is the sense that arguments to and fro, someone has a different view, give and take, whatever, maybe you'll, you'll have a really good fight about it and then make up or something. There's a, there are all these little rituals that you learn. I learned them in high school, elementary school, when you're dealing with your friends or whatever. You put out an idea or an opinion about something or a taste and suddenly someone pushes back on you for the first time. And then, then you have to deal with that socially. And so you, would, you learn to adjust. But online, it's, you have these pure expressions that, that almost never have to be mediated by anyone else. You're looking at a screen. And if people right. don't like it, they hate it. <laughs> and, and people then withdraw. I've noticed that that generation, when I've had discussions with them, just very gingerly kind of like open question. I've not been trying to lecture them. They get very, very uncomfortable if it feels like you disagree with them on some very basic level and tend to want to flee as soon as that happens. 
Now, I don't, I find that, I don't think that's a plus at all. I think that's an incredible minus in as much as if we have to live in a society with this amount of diversity of opinion and views and cultures and all the rest of it, we better get used to being a little uncomfortable at moments and, and, and not feel that it's such a bloody big deal. And we should be able to have arguments with other people and not hate them. Yeah. And I, I agree with you on that completely. I was, as you were, as you were talking though, I was also trying to think of what a Gen Z might, a young adult might say yeah. in response. I would guess they would say that there's a lot of boomers who also get really offended, especially online, and then we'll shut down the conversation. Mm -hmm. True. That they might say that there's certain things they feel like shouldn't even be argued about. I bet in that category would be things around racism and LGBT rights and things like that, that they would say, you know what? We're not, I'm not going to argue about this because anybody on the other side is just wrong. Regardless of what specific question you're talking about, because there are... I mean, and that's the challenge. There's a right? huge variety of questions. You're gonna, and, the, yeah. and it's also very up to debate what is racist and what isn't racist. And, and, and I think that that's what's often missed, you know, on that side of saying, well, we just, we can't argue about this. I mean, here's another thing that I want to talk to you about because it's also something personal to me having lived generationally as a, a gay person in my particular gen x slash boomer incarnation an absolute revolution in my lifetime and you can see this also in your studies what's there the, there has been an increase in number of people saying that they are gay well the trouble with this lgbtqia plus plus stuff is that it conflates so many different things yeah and it it, yeah. it actually does. It doesn't. It's confusing in many ways. And so let, let's take this: the number of let's take let's take the from the generation of my grandparents, the silence to today. My general feeling among men, and I think we need to split the men off from the women here. Is not not that much more evidence of more gay men around than there were a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. um, Data back backs you up on that. There's a little bit of an increase, but not a whole lot. A little, because some people just feel more comfortable. Some bisexual guys have decided that that might be a better way for them to be with another dude. Right. That, that's where there is a difference. Yeah. Yep. So for men, there's there are more who identify as bisexual. Yes. Right. But actual numbers of, of gay people forming gay relationships, having gay sex, pretty... Anyway, gay, gay men. Now, women are a whole different kettle of fish, so to speak. And because, partly because sexuality seems to be among women to be more fluid in, in yeah. general. Uh, they're yeah. more mature. They can be attracted to people's personalities and characters more than their physical attributes, for example. And I'm not saying the men can't do that, but it, it just seems to be there's a slight distinction between the sexes on that front. But the number of women who now regard themselves as non-straight is quite remarkable. It's doubled among young adults anyway. In how long? Pretty short period of time, less than 10 years. Wow. Now, you would think, I don't know, maybe not, that, and this is what I think also about the, the gay stuff, the, 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 the feminist revolution, the gay rights revolution, gave young women and young gay people like extraordinary choices that their grandparents never had whatsoever, right? right? And yet women, young women, seem to be a lot more unhappy than even young men. They seem to be identifying as bisexual in much greater numbers. 
and they seem to be now identifying as transgender in, in, in numbers that are wildly disproportionate to the number of men. So tell, tell me about women through the generations. What's, what's happening here? Yeah. Yeah. It, it really, it is extraordinary. So, you know, what most people would agree. Hi there. The good part of the- this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>